welcome to the Inclusive Leader Podcast. The practice of inclusive leadership enables us to tackle the complex challenges of our times. This is the space for conversations about inclusive leadership. I am your host, Jörg Schmitz, and I welcome you to this episode. As an anthropologist, Dr. Cheryl Williams is equally at home in the jungles of Suriname as the corporate jungles around the world. Focusing on what divides as well as unites us, Cheryl has crystallized in her work the art of getting one another. To her, it is the essential foundation for getting anything done in this multicultural, diverse, global environment. This is why she focuses on compassionate curiosity as the essential practice of inclusive leaders. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Cheryl. So Cheryl, I ask everybody the same question at the beginning. So what do you do? George, I have been really uh, pleased to have been able to work in this whole field of civil rights, which it was long ago referred to as now social justice and many other terms it's taken on. And we'll talk a little bit later about why this is so passionate um, and necessary for me to do. But I'm labeled rightfully as a corporate anthropologist today uh, that comes from a solid 20 plus years experience in human resources, a solid 20 plus years in um, in academics and academia as a professor. And being able to combine business with academics has led me to this area of corporate anthropology for, for years where I've had the, the really the benefit of being able to consult with many organizations. What does a corporate anthropologist do, many ask? It's funny, Yorgo, my business card is says corporate anthropologist. And I go, what is that? Well, anthropology is simply the study of a culture, if you just go really, really broad. When you talk about corporate anthropology, it's when we combine what we consider traditional anthropology with is what is a culture, which is what people think, what people see, what people feel, what people do, and how to, and all those things that embody the terminology culture, with business. So it connects those dots and it connects primarily the tools that an anthropologist uses when they're going in mapping a ethnic culture or a racial culture or gender or historical, many other things that an anthropologist. So organizations that I work with um, really have me go in and really get an up close and personal snapshot as well as deep dive understanding of who is attracted to their field, their business first, who might be attracted to their company to work for, and then why, and then what actually do workers do once they're there? So using the tools of cultural assessment, using the tools of um, being able to understand, of observation, which is, of course, you know, the number one skill for field anthropologists, which is what I am, is the skill of observation. So we do that. And we kind of bring the study of humans, if I were to say that uh, in a very short way, and we marry it or we put it into the study of, of business, the lessons of business, I should say. So that's kind of in a, in a real nutshell what, what I do and what corporate anthropologists do. Yeah. And, and I, I, you know, we share this passion for anthropology. So I, I think <laughs> I'm going to be self-indulgent here, but... Can you say a little bit about the field research that you have done? Because I think that's that's really fascinating and maybe give an example of how 
that field research has helped you professionally? Absolutely. Thank you. So when I was working on my doctorate, my PhD, and it got to the field work, I had long also wanted to work in this field of uh, working with um, tribal cultures. I was very interested in particular at that time, the African ancestry cultures, because there was a lot of things going on in the world that were bringing the difference between uh, African-Americans, black and white, not just Americans, of course. So um, in doing my studies of looking at what populations I was going to uh, look at, it took me to the Amazon jungle. It took me to the Amazon rainforest to study at that time in 1993-94, the tribal community there was called the Bush Negroes. Of course, that term itself can be very um, insensitive or offensive to others, except in, in context and, and, and in place, that was the appropriate um, uh, label that the um, Africans who lived in the interior chose. Uh, you refer to the tribal name, of course, if you want to be correct. But what they did in a nutshell, it took me deep into the Amazon rainforest because I was looking for what is African from a communication perspective about what people do, what people see, what people think, what people feel that's purely African. Because so much of what all human beings do, and it's a collective of the many cultures as well as down there. But there are specific and unique things that are culturally grounded. And if I were to be able to ramp that up to an American audience, a European audience, an Asian audience, to help them to understand, well, this is why eye contact, this is why uh, physical space, this is why, you know, volume of, of, of how you deliver messages is so important across this culture, because that's how it understood more accurately. So I lived for a little over two years deep in the Amazon jungle, but studied within the tribes. I lived there, six tribes that live in the rainforest. I entered through Suriname, and uh, Suriname is uh, used to be Dutch Guiana um, many years ago, and then it gained its independence in the mid-70s. And briefly what it is, when the Africans were taken from West Africa and brought across the transatlantic uh, slave times, as soon as they hit land, and if you were to actually even just use a ruler on a globe or a map and draw from Ghana, the belly of Africa, where the slave trade, where the African trade started, and you lay it on, you get to, you hit South America. So as soon as the people touched land, they ran, they fled into the interior, and they lived there for over 300 years. They live there today. It's over 350 years, and they still live there, as I, as I mentioned today. What they did is they fought a 100-year war with the Dutch colonists at that time, and they gained their independence, but they were relegated to live into the jungle or the interior, as, is, as we refer to call it. And so because they are, have been so remote, no newspapers, no outside tourism, no Peace Corps, the U.S. organization, no media, no, you know, because they were more remote and because of the, the forest environment from how they plant medicine, so forth and so on, they were able to bring over some of those same uh, ways of living that you had in that part of Africa to, to South America. And it worked. So they were able to sustain that. And so then in the mid 90, mid 90s, when I first went over there, you had uh, you had that. So I was able to embed myself and, and they invited me because I had several trips over there uh, to gain entry before then I was able to, they I was they were kind enough to say, no, come live with us. And I did from the Paramount Chief's appreciation uh, to the lone little villager 
I've consistently gone back and forth uh, for the last 20 some years going there, um, as you well know. Of course, now, you know, if you go there today, right now, you'll see some cell phones, you'll see some uh, tourists, a lot of eco-tourism off about 10 years ago. You still have a lot of that, certainly their, their, their culture they're hanging on to, which is yet another lesson, how you really don't take culture away. You can build on top of it, but someone's foundation, even after these many generations, there's still a lot that is that is that is very much so uh, in, in place. What what I find fascinating about this this field of study, first of all, um, it is so relevant to so many conversations today, right? In our society, um, you're also studying change, right? The communication style, cultural tradition, and identity. All of those things actually are things that I observe in corporations as well today, or in organizations, right? You 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 may talk, talk to a uh, tribal chief in Suriname, you know, but ultimately that's like like talking to an executive in an organization, um, even though they may not think of themselves in this in in the same terms. Absolutely, York, you are so sure you're so right on that. You know, when I'm having my conversations with uh, a CEO or, or 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 a university president or a corporate, you know, um, uh, executive, they're just trying. First of all, they want to do business. That's why they're in business. You know, whether it's a nonprofit or a for-profit, you know, like that. They want to be successful. They want to have folks that work for them to be engaged. They want to be able to have customers, clients, students, you know, engaged. So they need to understand. They want to understand. Who are these people? I'm over here doing quotes, although you can't see me doing my air quotes. They need to understand the people, whether they're called customers, clients. I do a lot in the entertainment business still, particularly sports entertainment. And so we would call them fans you know, like that. So even the, the fans, they need to understand it. And I'll come back to the word understand. They need to recognize when you're in a different culture. Obviously, sometimes someone will look at the face or just at the visibility and think, well, we must be the same. And it's not. It's not. Just like for me, I would move from tribe to tribe. And in some of the tribes that I it was, six, it was six tribes down uh, in, in Suriname that I worked with, and I've had the pleasure to visit all six. It would be like going from you know Germany to Brazil or from Japan to Argentina. You had as much, you have some similarities because it's, human, it's humanity, but you have difference. So the CEO, the business person needs to understand that even recruiting from Gen Z, as we call it, the, the newer the uh, generation hitting the labor force, to the baby boomers, if I can use that phrase, for those people that are in my age category, you know, like that, who were, who were there when uh, Martin Luther King and Gandhi were alive. But anyway, so by being able to understand your cultures, by being able to recognize the differences and the similarities, but you need to recognize the difference to be able to embrace that. Even, you know, something as simple as the difference of the human being that works in an accounting quantitative function and someone who might work in a public relations qualitative function. They may they may have and surely have complementing skills, but oftentimes even the mindset, why someone might have chosen that career, someone might, those subtleties can make a difference. And anthropology, who I'm out trying to map the culture of the Saramakans versus the, the Juca versus, you know, the O'Connors, uh, some of those tribes, 
is very different. You know, Jorg, one one thing before, um, I also had the pleasure to work a little bit with some uh, in the here in the U.S., uh, some Native American communities. And the same thing, you'll find the tribal differences to this day from when, you know, when 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 the American when when the Europeans first came to the shores of the United States, you find some some that are just very much so keep it keep it intact, keep that culture intact, whether you're you're Cherokee or whether you're, you know, um um Cheyenne, you know, like that Blackfoot and all, all the many, 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 I don't want to just name three, but the many the tribes there. So I say all this to say at the end, it, it ramps down to human beings. I want to re- kind of introduce the term, but it's, it's, it's not new at all, called compassionate curiosity. And that's something that I talk about uh, uh, doing every single day with, within my work, within my field of, of anthropology. Compassionate curiosity is uh, the ability to dig for more information without judgment, but also simultaneously identifying how one, how that person is feeling or thinking. So it's it's one of those gut level feels that often people talk about. And I don't mean to laugh at spouses, but my husband now gets it. You know, he says, when I say, uh, he'll ask me, uh, or I'll ask him, are you hungry? And he knows now to say, are you hungry? As opposed to, telling me he is or he isn't because he's really recognized and I'm being nice asking it as a question when in actuality, the husband-wife combination, you like that, um, the, I really don't care about his state of hunger, but I'm asking him to, I'm being compassionate. <laughs> by asking him, is he hungry by telling me I am? But I say that as a as kind of a, uh, an anthropologist joke. But sure. <laughs> so my, my humor doesn't always come across, but that's kind of what we do. You know, like, so... When I'm doing my field work, whether I'm in the interior of the jungle, whether I'm in a hamlet in India, whether I am uh, Namibia, you know, South Africa, Ghana, uh, the Gambia, whether I'm in Brazil, even I've gone to Brazil many times, which is has more your of your uh, Amerindians there as well. Although we have um, many of the Maroons, that's also the Bush, uh, the Bush Negroes today is called more Maroons for some. So wherever I might have been able to apply this skill set, and I have been really fortunate that organizations have lived or worked in a little over 80 countries so far where I've been able to apply um, these skills, these anthropology skills. So you mentioned observation before, and you wanted to come back to the idea of understanding, by the way. But is compassionate curiosity the key skill, you would say, that you need and and that you've learned and that is transferable to the corporate environment? Absolutely. That is the number one skill. And doing, being, applying compassionate curiosity is the key. Because the difference between just being curious is it's something you want to know about, and that's good. I'm hoping people have curious. But just being curious can sometimes, you know, come across as if you're being nosy you're trying to find out something that people don't understand why you're doing it. So it could have a tinge of not niceness, as I call it. But compassionate curiosity is a really good thing because I'm wanting, I want to understand what is it about being German that I need to know as an American. So when I'm working with Germans in Germany, about Germany, will help me better understand 
what's going on beyond just me reading the histories and trying to educate myself and become knowledge. So I want to be able to apply participant observation, we call it, which is my way of digging for information, paying attention to things, asking questions, clarifying what you heard. And a huge, huge connector with compassion and curiosity is listening. Whether it's active listening, you know, which is what we all teach today for active listening to be listening for understanding, not to be understood. But you have to sometimes listen for point counterpoint because there are times when you're listening to a conversation and there's hidden agendas there. So you need to be ready to ferret that out, you know, and I can talk more more about that. I don't want to get too, too, too off track at all here. But yeah, so you need to be able to to do all of that and you do it simultaneously when you're when you're being compassionate while you're being curious. So I asked you earlier, um, you know, what do you do? <laughs> and you've done a lot, right? You were uh, in HR and in, in academia in uh, as a consultant working for organizations. Is it fair to say that what ties all of this together is actually that skill of compassion, curiosity of participant observation and using that constructively across all these endeavors? Absolutely. You know, I would say that it's interesting uh, from when I was in grade school, high school, and certainly undergraduate in college, I was often tapped to be one of the leaders that, and I certainly didn't consider myself a leader, but I remember asking someone, particularly in high school, why me? You like that? And I mean, I'm, I was, and I meant that sincerely. I said, because Cheryl, you get us. You get us. And I've thought about that often, you know, like that. And I've even had family members that have said to me, you know, just kind of in passing, you know, Cheryl, how do you do that? You get us. And I thought, you know, I finally decided that that's a compliment. I finally decided that that's probably a good compliment because I do take the time, whether it's a company, you know, a, a CEO, a, um, a physician, a lawyer, a fellow professor, you know, a consultant, you know, like that, or the front line. You know, I have um, my my youngest grandson is a uh, child is eight years old. And even with a little eight year old, I have compassionate curiosity when he comes to me. He may or may not have had a good day in school. He may or may not want to let his dad know that he had a bad day at school. So he comes to me and I said, well, you know, his name is Thomas. I said, well, Thomas, tell me, how was your day? I'm applying compassionate curiosity and it actually is healing mm -hmm. in a healing way. Now, take it out of the eight-year-old, you know, environment. And you put it now with a 62-year-old CEO that has issues of wondering why is my why is engagement so low within our employees? Why is turnover so high? What's going on within my shipping and receiving area? What's going on within the, the front desk operation? What's going on? And so I go and I spend some little time at the, at the end. I'll tell you a little bit about a few things that, that anyone can do. You know, you don't have to be an anthropologist to do this. And so that's what we do. So I do. I, I get them to just connect to recognize that, you know, seeing something without judgment, seeing something without immediately putting um you know when you when you hear something and you want to I, I don't want to keep using the word judgment but that's what it is that you really want someone as open-minded that was what I'm thinking you need to be as mindful and as open-minded as you can but now recognizing you we're we are not all the same 
So no matter how compassionate Cheryl Williams will be, it's still going to be a little bit different from York Smith's, which is a good thing. So then when York and Cheryl work together and we happen to be fellow anthropologists, then, well, Cheryl, this is what I heard. And I'm going to say, well, York, this is what I heard. Because somewhere between all of that was what was meant. You can hear the words, but we, we both can hear the same words. But you pull it through your lens and, 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 and histories. I pull it through my lens and history. You know, this is not just an exercise in academe. I know sometimes people say, oh, Cheryl, you know, the academics is not a good thing. But this is really an exercise that anyone can do. In my opinion now, we all should do because that's what's really going to even bring humanity up a few notches in the world on what's going on. And I'll I'll wait for you to maybe dig a little bit deeper if you would like on social trust. But that is one of the end results for all of this. Yeah, I know that you have been, I mean, as as intently as you're focused on compassionate curiosity, and I love this, by the way, you mentioned this a few times, times digging deeper for more information without judgment, and this whole idea of um, getting someone else, you know, or or sometimes I call it um, understanding what it's like to be someone else, right, in a, in a, in a sense. But the other part you've been focused on is that idea of social trust, and you mentioned it just now. So, so why don't you talk about that a little bit, and how is that connected to your work and and to what you're concerned about? Social trust, in a nutshell, is a company's what a company's cost is in undertaking economic transactions, which is why companies, even nonprofits, are in business for economic you know gain somehow and now what they do with that gain is you know, of course is 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 always good and if the employee the client the customer the the communities feel that as a company we can trust that what you're doing is for the good of all humankind then that's a really good thing i know so now it sounds like that's a really big esoteric thing to say but it's crucial because social trust can determine social and economic development as well as human well-being. Think about companies that are in your in your community, in your neighborhood. As soon as you say, and I'm just going to throw out a couple of names, you say Amazon, you say uh, Microsoft, you say Apple, you say Budweiser beer, you say you know Taco Bell, Doritos, some of the US things. You say all these companies and different things pop to mind. A company that as soon as I hear the word Patagonia, you know, the, the outfits, I immediately have and feel like there's a trust there because I know they give back to the environment. The environment is something that's important to me. It, it's more than just the PR piece of what a company does. But so you have to have a social trust because companies need to feel, employees, customers need to feel that whatever it is you are in business doing you have a humanity that's grounded in it. At the end of that, at the end of that rainbow, as I say, at the end of that is human human well-being. Oh, even if you are a, a manufacturer of weapons, of which I am not a gun person at all, don't mean to be political about that whatsoever, but there's even a way to be compassionate about whatever that product might be. It may have its it may have its reasons for being, certainly. And companies will tell me, Cheryl, we get that. Now, how do we do it? How do we do social trust? And this gets us by, right back with why this is important today, right? I think we've all seen institutions that have served us 
more or less well for a number of, of decades or sometimes centuries crumble, right? Crumble and, and really um, lose their relevance or their support by people or by groups. And I think this idea of social trust is is central to that. Exactly, exactly. Thank you. Yeah, you know, it's it's not a bad idea for organizations. This is certainly my opinion, but it's not self-serving at all for companies to really tie in what academics know, meaning research that's connected to their business, that field, because you have um, more than just nuggets of information. It's well thought out, well detailed. Here's what's going on. You know, oftentimes when I'm writing corporate training programs, I'll have the company say, sure, I'll leave all the theory out. We want application, leave all that mumbo jumbo theory out. And I get it. I know what they mean. They don't want to have long, you know, 15, 20 minute, 30 minute, you know, uh, types of lectures who, 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 you know, other than other than maybe in a university environment or a learning environment. But, you know, what I say, you know, is theory is just what makes something explainable. In a nutshell, you know, that's what a theory, theoretical means that it's something, it's a way to explain things, whether it's social penetration theories, whether it's uncertain reduction theory, it's a way that you think. So you don't have to, we don't have to use the word theory, but it's the why. So then as soon as, you know, you write the training program and it's a good one, they'll say, oh, that, that's great. You know, like the activities, like all this and that. We have to kind of embed in there why you're doing it, because if not, they'll ask. But Cheryl, why did you have us start out with an icebreaker that was on personal identities? Cheryl, why did you have us start off with an icebreaker on this or that or our first video clip that we saw? And you recognizing it does tie to the bottom line of the objectives, because within corporate training, you know, it, you know, we, we take great pride. And I know you do because you've, you've done it, too, with um, with what we call behavioral objectives, which are objectives that are always measurable. So instead of saying, I understand something, I would say you can explain it or you can describe it or you can because that's something you can do, whereas you can't I can't see if you understand it. So I, now I have to ask you, why has that become your focus? From my perspective, you you have a an extremely interesting blend of a practical orientation mixed in with academic foundation mixed in with a ton of just practical um, experience. And why has that become your focus? You know, York, thank you for asking that question, actually, because it's important to me of, of that part of Cheryl Williams. And I came from humble beginnings, I guess that's a polite way to say it, out of Gary, Indiana, and Gary, Indiana, for those of you who know a little bit about the U.S. and the, the Midwest and the sojourn of the of the African-American uh, coming from the South, moving up to the North, you know, when slavery was, um, was emancipated, so forth. That was what launched me in understanding when people are treated differently based on skin color. I don't think I understood what race meant then when I was in third, fourth grade. But I understood when people were allowed, you know, I understood videos we saw, I understood trips to the South when I saw for colors only or no colors or for whites only, you know, messages. And I had very good parents who helped me to understand that. And I had very, um, very intelligent parents 
But then, you know, I got into high school and that was at the height of the civil rights movement. That's what it was called then and the marches on Washington. And I mean, I was not just there listening on the radio. I actually was engaged in some of that. I didn't I, I didn't march on Washington, but in Chicago, they had some some marches. And so many of us junior high and high school kids went over there and did it. So you fast forward from those 60s, 1960s here and what was happening in the U.S. and around the world, different things were happening to the murder of George Floyd. The murder, and I'm going to use the phrase murder because that's, I know it's dramatic, but that's how I interpreted it, lets me know that my work is still, and all of this work, not just my work, is still necessary. As long as people continue to allow inequity, unfair, crime-laden, disrespect, offensive, all those things that when people get judged based on the color of their skin, based on their uh, sexual orientation, based on their gender, based on their religion, you know, based on, and the list can go on and on, versus, in the famous words of Dr. King, versus the content of their character. And I live that. I, I I do it. I I do a lot of volunteer work. I still do today. I do a lot of volunteer, work, and I'm happy to be able to do that for the cause. You know, absolutely for the for the cause. So, in a nutshell, to answer your question, what what gets me up in the morning is something's in my belly. Something's in my belly that says this isn't right, and I can do something about it. My little pebble to help do something right is is in this space as an anthrop- applying what I learned in school, and as an anthropologist, how can I make that how can I help that help me help others? You know, like that, I guess I should. So, you know, I do it. it. It really comes through how much this is work of passion for you that is born of your personal experience and care for the world at large and 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 specifically for I think the 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 experience of of black folks in the world today. This brings you back to Suriname as well, right? Because which was all part of the the black diaspora in a way, or the African diaspora. And I am I'm just so you know excited on one hand. I mean, not 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 about that 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 has to be the topic, but I'm excited and also very grateful to you to bring that experience and that passion that sits in your belly to this institute that we are creating here. And um, I don't want to forget to mention that, actually, because it's it's really important to me because I'm excited for what people can learn from you, what I can learn from you, what others can learn from you. And that's exciting to me. Thank you, York. You know, and I, till the day I get my wings or close my eyes permanently, I will work in this space. And I will be there as much for others because others are there for me. And by no means a shameless plug, but I was able to, I wrote and released uh, actually my my third publication, Academics, called um, Inclusive Leadership Global Impact. In that particular book I, I, that, I, that I co-authored with my colleague, uh, Dr. Gunling, we talk about a lot of stories in that book. And we talk about what you just kind of mentioned, which made me think about the book. Uh, we try to tie personal stories to actual frames of how we can be more inclusive from a leadership perspective. Leadership is not a title. Matter of fact, you don't decide if you're a leader. When I used to teach in my MBA classes on leadership, your the first day I would ask all I would ask the students, how many of you in this class are a leader? Consider yourselves a leader. 
And then maybe you have 25 people in the class, you know, uh, 15 plus 20 would, would raise their hand that they're a leader. And I'd say, great. So I'd say, well, who are your followers? They didn't have any. About half of them didn't have any. I said, well, how can you be a leader if you don't have any followers? I'm just using the term, you know, from a pure academic standpoint, leaders, leaders and followers, because you're either or. At one point, you're also both. I'm both. I'm only a leader because others allow me to be a leader. Others put you in the place of being a leader. I remember reading one of Dr. King's, uh, a book about Dr. King, one of the biographies that, that written about him. And they said that when he first was pushed forward, he by no means chose to be a leader. The people pushed him out front. That's how we started calling him a leader. I say that because there are people who try to put themselves into leadership roles called dictatorship and many other nice and unkind words. I mean, none of them are nice to me. Whether it's necessary or not, once again, I certainly don't mean to make any part of this political at all. But um, but but it is you know, like that. So when you talk about being an inclusive leader, which is for what businesses and companies uh, typically want, and, and I agree, I should, is you need to recognize who are your followers back to the infinity loop of how corporate anthropology can help you to understand who might they be. And then if you are a leader, who are you leading? Who gave you that? notoriety of being a leader. I'm not talking about job title. You can have the biggest job title or the, or the or the most entry job title in the world, but that has nothing to do with whether someone has put you into into that role. What are some really practical takeaways? Although I suspect I can guess from our conversation what you might emphasize, but what are some one or two practical takeaways for the people that are listening? Learn the tools of what, when you're applying compassionate curiosity, what that looks like. It works even not only at work, but it works in your personal life as well. Thank you for listening. You can sign up for more wherever you get your podcasts. Just look for the Inclusive Leader Podcast. To find out more about the Inclusive Leadership Institute, visit us at www.theinclusiveleadershipinstitute.com.